0: Okay, this took me way too long to try and get set up just for myself. This is uh, not as easy as you'd think it would be. Hey everybody, how's it going? Uh, Jack here, just Jack today. This is not your normal episode. Uh, Dan and I, we've been busy, stuff's come up, life gets in the way, Um, and we weren't able to get to what we wanted to get to this week, which was the god dang um, third part of our critically acclaimed Fundamental Principles uh, of Communist Production and Distribution uh, thing. That was going to be our third and final episode on it. Um, Still coming. It'll just probably be next week. Uh, It's going to be a banger. That book rocks. It ends on a high note. It's all good. Anyway, that'll be next week. Uh, But it's just me today doing an adjunct statements, which is kind of weird because this is coming out on a Friday and that doesn't usually happen. Um, But we wanted to give you guys something. Uh, and this, uh, it'll be something. I don't know what it'll be. Um, kind kind of quickly. I, I wanted to kind of, you know, I, we figured we should try and put something out. So what we got for you this week is a bit of a rushed adjunct statements. It's me reading an essay that I wrote kind of a Maybe like a year ago. I think it was like either before lockdown or just as lockdown happened and nobody knew what to do. And I just kind of sat in my room writing about like Tolkien and stuff. Um, so I'm going to read you this essay because I didn't really have time to prepare for anything else. Um, this is an essay I wrote called Utopian Projection in Mid 20th Century Fantasy A Comparative Study of Ursula K. Le Guin and J.R.R. Tolkien. I wrote this a while ago, like I said, and I never did anything with it. Just kind of sat on my computer. Um, So now you can all uh, discover with me uh, why that is, why I never did anything with it. So anyway, let me just check we're recording. We are recording. Um, With that, uh, let's just get into it. I'll put the whole essay up somewhere. I'll, like, link it in the show notes or whatever if anybody actually wants to read it. If you don't want to listen to my whiny voice, um, you can check out all the references and the citations and whatnot. Um, read it for yourself, feel free. Plagiarize to your heart's content. Do whatever you want, I guess. I don't know. Um, so, yeah, this is uh essay about my two favorite authors, uh, Ursula Le Guin and J.R.R. Tolkien. So, uh, without further ado, uh, once again, this is Utopian Projection in Mid 20th Century Fantasy, a comparative study of Ursula K. Le Guin and J.R.R. R. Tolkien. In the summer of 1916, 24-year-old John Tolkien departed England for France. What awaited him on the banks of the River Somme was horror even the mind of one of fantasy's greatest authors could never have imagined. Thousands of miles away and just a few months earlier, Ishii, the last remaining member of the Yahi tribe of Northern California, would breathe his famous last words, You stay, I go. One of the anthropologists tasked with befriending and learning from Ishii was Berkeley professor Alfred Kroeber father of fantasy and science fiction author Ursula K. Le Guin. Le Guin would be raised in a world of Californian liberal intellectualism that seemed to come to terms with the state's genocidal past, but it would not take an exercise in faith to assume that as with Tolkien's time in World War I, Le Guin's intimacy with the American genocide of the Yahi and the tale of Ishii would inform heavily on her philosophy. Perhaps these experiences would even lead both offers offers authors to ponder what a better world may look like. In this essay, I'll first try to understand how fantasy as an artistic medium lends itself to utopian projection. While none of the books I will discuss take the explicit utopian form, e.g. Thomas More's Utopia or William Morris's News from Nowhere, they all have elements of utopian vision or utopian longing. Fantasy excels when used as a medium for this type of visionary literature, yet the end result can vary wildly. For as I'll show, while Le Guin and Tolkien held very different values, much of what they critiqued and longed for in their writing was born from a fundamental mistrust of the modern capitalist state. Fantasy is utopia. Over the years, utopian dreaming has taken many forms, whether that be as a film that explicitly depicts utopian values such as egalitarianism and freedom, or as a painting that more abstractly lets us reflect on our flawed circumstances. But fantasy as literature and the myriad forms and subgenres it has taken over the years is perhaps the most excellent and easily interpreted form of utopian art that we can find. Fantasy is the amalgamation of many traditions. In both high and low works of fantasy, we find influences from classical epics, folk tales, fairy tales, and medieval lays. Visions of worlds that could be are commonplace in all forms of storytelling, because what is fantasy if not an imagining of more exciting and attractive circumstances? Yet it would be a mistake to claim that all works of fantasy have the same effect on our consciousness and our understanding of current social relations. The most powerful fantasy uses the author's command and understanding of our need for something better to critique the world that we have been born into. These stories stem from our dissatisfaction towards the radical inequality, exploitation, and domination all around us. This was said, perhaps most succinctly, by Jack Zipes in his study of the work of German philosopher Ernst Bloch. It would, of course, be misleading to argue that every story told is utopian or to assert that there is a quote-unquote essential utopian nature to storytelling. There is, however, a utopian tendency that helps us explain why it is we feel so compelled to create and disseminate tales and why we are enthralled by particular stories. The tales in this utopian tendency stem from the lack that we feel in our lives, a discernible discontentment, and a yearning for a better condition in our world. Paradoxically, the happiness of the listeners and readers of utopian tales depends on the unhappiness of the tellers. Without discontent, there is no utopia. Without projections of utopia, our world would be a dismal place, End quote. But this tendency to project utopia can be regressive as well as progressive. The entire culture industry, so named by Theodor Adorno and Max Horkheimer, performs a regressive function by forcing us to accept and replicate the exploitative exploitative, exploitive, social relations that have become commonplace. Many authors, directors, etc. use their skills to mass-produce market commodities that shape how we view the societies around us. It even goes beyond simple acceptance of the status quo as each generation consumes the media that has been normalized and seeks to replicate and build on their inherited power structures we build where the last generation left off whether subconsciously or consciously and create parodies of the forms that have been we have been left with in an effort to honor them discontentment floats just beneath the surface however but what it is the artist is discontented with and how they propose to adjust society to meet their standards is what is most crucial. Hmm. To understand just how the artist creates these projections of utopia, we will explore two works of fantasy that take very different approaches to subverting cultural norms. These works are Ursula Le Guin's 1968 novel A Wizard of Earthsea and Tolkien's posthumously published 1977 work of invented mythology, The Silmarillion. Looking forward A Wizard of Earthsea, the first novel in Le Guin's Earthsea cycle, follows a relatively straightforward plot. A young man who goes by the name Dooney, later Sparrowhawk, and later still Jed, is born on an island named Gaunt. (laughs) Gaunt is renowned for producing some of the greatest wizards the greater Earthsea archipelago has ever seen. One day, Jed overhears his aunt, a witch of limited power, performing a spell of control on a misbehaving goat. He remembers the words she used in casting her spell and attempts to try it for himself. He is then visited by Ogion, a master wizard, who gives him his adult name, which is Jed. The adult name in Earthsea is something held in private and only told to those who they would truly trust with their life. In this world, names are the source of magic. If a wizard wishes to bring a hawk out of the sky or to subdue a dragon, they simply channel their power into saying the creature's true name, In Earthsea, All things are bound by their name. Jed then makes his way to the island of Roke, where he is taught to control his magic and is told by one of his masters what becomes the main theme of the book. To change a rock into a drool, you must change its true name. And to do that, even to so small a scrap of the world, is to change the world. You must not change one thing until you truly know what good and evil will follow from that act. Jed, of course, later makes a fatal error in this regard in meddling with the dark side of magic. In an attempt to impress his fellow students, Jed releases a terrible shadow creature into the mortal world. It nearly kills him, and then vanishes away. The rest of the novel deals with Jed attempting to banish this creature back to its own realm. He is told that it has no name, and thus cannot be controlled with magic, but in the conclusion of the novel, Jed confronts the shadow, and discovers that it does have a name, Jed. It is only after realizing that the darkness he has unleashed into the world is very much a part of himself that Jed is able to learn his true place in the equilibrium of nature and take the shadow out of the world from which it does not belong. Firstly, it is important to note the influence of Eastern philosophy, specifically Taoism, that emanates throughout A Wizard of Earthsea. Taoism and the concept of acting as a part of a greater balance plays a major role in much of Le Guin's writing, perhaps most notably in her 1971 novel The Lathe of Heaven. For Le Guin, a better world can be bought into being by recognizing, just as Jed recognized in his climactic confrontation with the shadow, that we are all but parts of the greater whole. We must realize that darkness is just as much a part of this whole as light. Utopia, then, in Le Guin's perspective, is projected as one where mutual aid plays as much of a role in the well-being of oneself as it does in the well-being of others. Jed sets out to save the world, only to realize that to do so, he must confront the danger that lives inside of himself. Le Guin set out from the start to make a work of fantasy that was actively subversive and utopian. She knew exactly what she was doing and what her message would be from the very start, and designed a novel that would project her vision of a better world. In a 2012 afterward to A Wizard of Earthsea, Le Guin wrote, quote, In many ways, my story did not follow tradition. Its subversive elements attracted little attention no doubt because I was deliberately sneaky about them. A great many readers in 1967 were not ready to accept a brown-skinned hero. I didn't make much of an issue about it, and you have to be well into the book before you realize that Jed, like most of the others, isn't white, end quote. Jed, his aunt Ogion, his best friend Vetch, and just about every other character are all various shades of copper brown and black. As Le Guin continued, quote, I was bucking the racist tradition of fantasy, but I did so quietly, and it almost went unnoticed, end quote. The tradition of fairy tales and folklore that came from northern Europe were those which Le Guin knew best and which were most prevalent in American media. In most of these stories, and the stories they later influenced, the heroes are white men who do battle against foes of various darker shades. Le Guin goes on to say that in many of the early editions of A Wizard of Earthsea, illustrators and publishers almost always portrayed the main character Jed as the typical white-skinned, fair-haired hero that the industry was used to. In the novel we also find very limited references to war. The only reference to fighting, such as the brief raid that takes place at the beginning of the book by the Kargish Raiders, perhaps the only overtly white characters in the novel. Quote, war as a metaphor is limited, limiting, and dangerous. Le Guin would write, I guess, end quote, I guess. This is odd and a work of mid twentieth century fantasy. All fantasy of this type was, and indeed still is, compared against Tolkien's 1954-1955 The Lord of the Rings trilogy, in which battle is an essential part of the narrative. This is absolutely the case the more pulp fantasy gets, as Robert E. Howard's classic tales of Conan the Barbarian and the like revolve almost entirely around acts of valor and prowess in battle. Le Guin would also go on to state, quote, There are no wars in Earthsea, no soldiers, no armies, no battles, none of the militarism that came from the Arthurian saga and other sources that by now, under the influence of fantasy war games, has become almost obligatory. I didn't and I don't think this way. My mind doesn't work in terms of war. My imagination refuses to limit all the elements that make an adventure story and make an exciting, danger, risk, challenge courage to just battlefields. A hero whose heroism consists of killing people is uninteresting to me, and I detest <laughs> the hormo- hormonal war orgies of our visual media, the mechanical slaughter of endless battalions of black-clad, yellow-toothed, red-eyed demons, end quote. War in fantasy, especially in its cinematic form, is commonplace. What would a film set in a perilous realm be without some kind of climactic battle? A box office flop, one would expect. Yet we accept the slaughter of those so-called demons as we accept the news of yet another drone bombing, a famine in faraway Yemen, or a bloody coup in South America. When she consciously turned the attention and purpose of fantasy away from the bloody crusade and against the forces of them by the enlightened forces of us and towards the inner, much more personal struggle of good versus evil, Le Guin was being actively subversive. For Le Guin, writing was much was as much about creating an enthralling story with a vibrant world as it was about disrupting the commodity market most fantasy now falls into. Writing in a time when sales agents were well underway in their takeover of literature, when they had just as much to say as about what should be taken out of or added into a piece of literature as any editor, Le Guin was making these active subversive elements to her knowledge, to her novels even, in an effort to disrupt the status quo Quote, right now, Le Guin would say, in a 2014 speech at the 65th National Book Awards, we need writers who know the difference between the production of a market commodity and the practice of an art, end quote. And so, perfectly in line with Bloch's theories on the nature of utopia, Le Guin's visions of utopia and Earthsea are a reaction against what she perceives as flaws under... under, undermining society? I think that should be underlining society? Whatever... As she, found an, as she found an outlet for her discontentment in the world of Earthsea, so too would Tolkien, but in an altogether different way. Looking backward, Tolkien's novels, specifically those of the Legendarium, the body of work that includes but is not limited to the Silmarillion, The Hobbit, and The Lord of the Rings trilogy, are not so progressive as Le Guin's fantasy. The main characters are white, they're mainly men, and mainly of their problem. Oh, and many of their problems are solved via battle. The backwards, male-dominated, and Eurocentric take on fantasy clearly hinders Tolkien's work, as said by Jack Zipes when discussing *The Hobbit*. Quote, this destroys the forward look of Tolkien's utopia, for he inadvertently promulgates notions about women which hark back to feudalism. This is Tolkien's quandary. Essentially, he wants to move forward toward a new humanism while moving backwards. End quote but it is indeed through looking backward that Tolkien also finds his inspiration for utopian projections. The Silmarillion is certainly not a modern work of literature. These are tales influenced directly by Northern European folklore and mythology, such as the Arthurian Cycle and the epic poem Beowulf. Indeed, in an oft-quoted passage from a letter to publisher Milton Waldman, Tolkien would explain his purpose in writing them on the myths of the Silmarillion, quote, I had a mind to make a body of more or less connected legend, ranging from the large and cosmogenic to the level of romantic fairy story. The larger founded on the lesser in contact with the earth, the lesser drawing splendor from the ba- vast backcloths which I would dedicate simply to England, to my country, End quote. To Tolkien, the stories which would eventually become those of the legendarium would be by nature replicas of tales of eras past. The legendarium would go on To not only be influenced by these centuries old traditions, but be an homage to them, specifically an homage to the traditions of Northern Europe. Tolkien was a devout Catholic, and his patriotism for England was never in question. He seems to have been a typical middle-class English Tory, though publicly commenting on politics was never exactly something that interested him. He famously hated Frank Herbert's 1965 science fiction classic, Dune, for reasons that one may assume could have had something to do with its explicit drug use and sharp anti-religion messages. Tolkien was a self-described hobbit, claiming in another letter, quote, I like gardens, trees, and unmechanized farmlands. I smoke a pipe, and I like good, plain, unrefrigerated food, end quote. He would later make it clear that in the same letter in the same letter that though he loved Wales and the Welsh language he found the Irish language wholly unattractive but still enjoyed the occasional sojourn across the Irish Sea to visit the beautiful green land he also detested French cooking one could be forgiven for making the mistake that Tolkien sounded like a man with a distaste for the different simply by virtue of it being unfamiliar while I would not go so far as to call Tolkien a xenophobe it does seem clear that this was a man who was stuck to what he knew and found great happiness in it Perhaps it was his upbringing that left him adverse to leaving home. Perhaps still it was his stint in the British army that allowed him to see the value in what he had back home. Gardens, trees, and good food. These were the little things that that army life, especially in 1916 along the upper reaches of the River Somme, did not provide. The Silmarillion, Tolkien's cosmogenic mythopoeia, to use his own word, is an excellent source to contrast with Le Guin's A Wizard of Earthsea as the utopian themes and cultural subversion are much more passive. Recounting the plot of The Silmarillion is a difficult task as the novel spans ages, planes of existence, and has an index full of names, places, and events partly in an invented language, but the broad strokes will suffice neatly enough. There was Error the One, the first section of The Silmarillion, titled The Eidol and Delay Begins who in Ardo was called Iluvatar, and he made first the Ainur, the holy ones that were the offspring of his thought, and they were with him before aught else was made. In the Silmarillion, there's only one true god, Eru Iluvatar, but these Ainur, split into the more powerful Valar and the less powerful Maiar, retain some godlike qualities. Eru himself is the only creator in the strict sense of the word. But when he created the Ainur from his thought in the void, Eru imbued within them what Tolkien would call a sub-creative impulse. Eru would go on to propound to them themes of music and visions that seemed to be plans for what was to come in the Earth and the universe. From here, the Valar, aided by the Maiar, would do their best to create the world, called Arda, as Eru propounded it to them, mostly only creating what they had explicitly seen in Eru's visions. As an interesting side note, the word Ea in Le Guin's Earthsea Cycle refers to the world the stories take place in, whereas in Tolkien's Legendarium, Ea refers to the greater universe. A major event in the Silmarillion is the fall of the Valar Melkor. Jealousy and hubris mark Melkor's character. He's a misanthrope, and from his actions, flaws in the perfect vision that Eru had for the world are woven into the nature of its existence. By Melkor's hand, many disasters befall Arda. The creation of the savage orcs and other terrible mockeries of life, great battles that would slay thousands, and the corruption of many Maiar, among them Melkor's Lieutenant Sauron. As the work of the Valar progresses, we learn that they are preparing Arda for the coming of the children of Iluvatar, elves and humans. Elves are born into the world first, and sometime later, humans awaken to it as well. But the children of Iluvatar must now live in Arda Mard, the world that was intended to be perfect for them, but is now forever poisoned by the evil deeds of Melkor. The novel itself gets its title from from its third section, the Quenta Silmarillion, or the History of the Silmarils. This is the largest section of the greater book. The Silmarils are three gems created by the elf genius Feanor. Suffice it to say that these are gems of unimaginable beauty and that they are greatly coveted by Melkor. The Quintus Silmarillion follows the history of these gems as they fall in and out of the hands of the villains and heroes. If we ignore the various stages which the Ainur spent creating the earth, there are three distinct ages which time is measured in the Legendarium. The first age begins with the awakening of the elves and ends in a massive battle that finally sees the overthrow and imprisonment of Melkor. The second age, detailed in the fourth section of the Silmarillion, titled The Akalabeth, tells the story of the men enlightened by Eru after their help in the overthrow of Melkor. And their battles and various dealings with Sauron. It ends with the confiscation of the One Ring created by Sauron and his defeat in battle. Finally, there's the Third Age, told in the Silmarillion in its final part, of the Rings and Power in the Third Age. This is more or less a condensed version of the events of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. To begin dissecting this dense worth of mythopoeia, we shall use a phrase borrowed from Lewis Carroll and begin at the beginning. It is readily apparent from the very earliest passages of the Silmarillion that the quality Tolkien prizes above all else is that of fellowship or solidarity. This is, of course, the main theme of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, but in the Silmarillion, it is a, necess- it is a necessity to the very creation of Earth. In the opening paragraphs of the Ainulindale, as Eru is propounding to the Ainur the themes of music and visions of the world that will be, Tolkien writes, quote, "...and they sang before him, and he was glad. But for a long while they sang only each alone." or but few together. Yet ever as they listened, they came deeper into understanding and increased in unison and harmony, end quote. The Einor attempted to recreate the music that Eru had created for them, the very music that would help the world exist or to be. Yet at the beginning, they tried to do so alone and in their own way. They failed spectacularly, and Eru was forced to try again. He emphasized the importance of working together as an orchestra, not alone as soloists. Tolkien used the word harmony literally, for it is only when the Ainur sang together and acted as one, using their individual gifts to make something greater than the sum of their parts, that the process of creation was finally ready to begin. Throughout the novel this theme comes back again and again, as the more harmoniously, as the more harmoniously the characters act with one another, the greater their creations and actions will be. However, if any given character should act solely in their own interest, the actions will lead only to destruction tragedy, and evil. Above the harmonious singing of the Ainur, however, there was one discordant voice that tried to raise itself above all, el- all others. Melkor at first sang with the Ainur in harmony, but the desire within him to create something of his own, and more importantly to rule something of his own, was too strong, and he began to weave discord into the song of the Ainur. These two contrasting moments of harmony and discord served to illustrate Tolkien's philosophy. It should be no surprise to learn that after Tolkien's time in the army during such a brutal period, he found value in solidarity. In the Inland Delay, Tolkien is perhaps reflecting on the flaws of his society. The Silmarillion itself was written in sections over the span of his entire life. It was an era of world history that the West was reacting against ideologies of socialism and communism. During Both during and immediately after World War I, each participant country struggled with domestic pacifist and militarist objection to the imperialist war and its rising inequality. Most notably, this took place in Russia by way of the 1917 revolutions and in Germany with its own revolution. The specter of socialist thinking would never fully go away during Tolkien's lifetime, or of course our own, and the ruling classes would have to invent new ways of challenging this ideology that prized working together for the common good of all over the greed of the few, Most notably, this took bizarre form in the works of Russian-American author Ayn Rand, specifically in her her novels The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged, where the very concept of altruism is viciously attacked. This was the society that Tolkien wrote his novels in, a world that could see its flaws but was at a loss of what to do about them. The brutal flaws of capitalism and Soviet-style communism were all too apparent. This led to a dissonance which left many confused and isolated. Perhaps as a cure for this dissonance, Tolkien looked back to an idealized view of pre-capitalist Europe for answers. His picturesque view of rural, feudal England and its village communes would inspire almost all of his writings. Camaraderie and fellowship in the age of capitalism had become utopian, yet these concepts found a home in Beleriand and in middle Earth. In the tale of Melkor's fall, we see the influence of Tolkien's more conservative philosophies, specifically that of Orthodox Catholicism. The Valar, those more powerful members of the Ainur, are roughly comparable to the pantheon of the ancient Greek gods. Manwe, the king of the Valar, is somewhat like Zeus, as he draws his strength primarily from the heavens. Ulmo, the Valar of all the waters on the earth, is similar to Poseidon, and Namo, or Mandos, is roughly equivalent to Hades. Yet none of these Valar possess the power or indeed the will to create anything independent of the one true god, Eru Iluvatar. What they possess is the so-called sub-creative impulse. To use Tolkien's own words, despite, quote, having assisted in Arda's making and ordering, the Valar cannot, by their own will, alter any fundamental provision, end quote. The Valar are sub-creative beings themselves, created by the one true god, Eru. And thus, whatever they want to do and however they act, they can only prove to be but Aru's instrument in creation. In this way Tolkien found a way to work around a mythology in which there's a pantheon of multiple gods, while at the same time remaining true to his profound Catholic faith. Melkor, however, wishes to create things that he himself can dominate and which are bound to none but himself. And so, as the tale of the Silmarillion unfolds, Melkor isolates himself and creates mockeries of that which he has seen in the visions of Aru. This abhorrence of the natural way of things eventually leads to Melkor's downfall at the end of the Quintesson Silmarillion in its climactic battle. It is interesting to note just how much emphasis Tolkien puts on themes of solidarity and working together, especially in the Aina only to have Melkor and others like him be punished for questioning the omnipotence of the all-powerful Eru. Melkor was, of course, not acting honorably, yet it would seem that the act of disobedience itself to the dogma of Eru was the bigger crime than that of marring Arda. Tolkien's philosophies, however progressive as they may seem, are always framed by a conservative disposition that in his case take the form of Catholic orthodoxy. Another prime example of this Catholic inspired take on the world is the creation of the One Ring in the Second Age by Melkor's Lieutenant Sauron. Ultimately, the price Sauron pays For creating such a powerful device is his own destruction, as he blasphemously imbued the ring with so much of his own energy that when it was destroyed, he was destroyed too. On the one hand, Tolkien would advise his readers not to take his work allegorically, while at the same time he would explicitly write religious themes into many of his novels. For example, in one of his letters, he hints at the character of the elf queen Galadriel as having similar qualities to Mary. In letter 142, Tolkien would elaborate on these Christian themes, stating, quote, The Lord of the Rings is, of course, a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, unconsciously so at first, but consciously in the revision, end quote. Perhaps, then, it is best to describe the ideals of solidarity in the Silmarillion as passive subversion. Unlike Le Guin's active subversion of cultural norms, accomplished by opposing the racist traditions of past forms of fantasy, Tolkien was very much... Attempting to operate fully within the bounds of the traditional fantasy form, while at the same time allowing his discontentment with modern society to passively influence his writing. The Silmarillion reads as much as a unique creative work as it does an homage to tales such as Beowulf or Elias Lahnrott's epic Kalevala. But the ideology of solidarity is especially prescient for our times. In an age where we're educated with the so-called great man theory of history, in which a single person, usually a white man and ever increasingly a wealthy individual in the private sector, this advice to act in coordination with each other is welcome indeed. To take just a single example, it will not be through the enlightened actions of those few billionaire philanthropists that we shall achieve salvation from climate change. Tolkien's views on what could be make the Silmarillion an impressive work of art, yet as already mentioned they tend to look back to the past instead of forward to the future for their influence. Tolkien was by no means a moral relativist. His morality was more influenced by somewhat medieval views on good and evil. In the First Age, after the elves have awoken, the plot for a while follows the life of Feanor. As previously mentioned, Feanor is the elf who created the Silmarils, those gems of unimaginable beauty. Eventually, these gems are stolen by Melkor, who places them in his crown as a mockery not just to Feanor, but to all the, valo, the valo, Valar, and thus Eru himself. The rest of Feanor's life is marked by one bad decision after another, and each choice has evil ramifications for centuries to come. One such evil act is what is described in the novel as the kin kinslaying. Fed up with the somber Valar and their advice to not just use his powers self. self- selfishly, to not use his powers selfishly, Feanor leads a large group of elves away from the land of the Valar and towards the land of the mortals. But to do this, Feanor and his people need ships, and the only ships fit for such a journey are held by elves still loyal to the Valar. Feanor and his people quickly slaughter a great number of these elves and steal their ships. Feanor's life quickly goes from promising to tragic as he lets his hubris and desire to regain possession of the Silmarils drive him to do terrible things. His life closely tracks with that of Melkor as he falls victim to many of the same sins, hubris, isolation, and impatience. In a telling conversation with the Doomsman and rough Hades equivalent of the Valar Mandos, Manwe laments the kinslaying. Manwe knows that while Feanor's deeds are terrible to behold, he is someone who will still be remembered forever. No matter what evils may come from his actions, Manway thinks, Feanor is still acting in such a way, quote, that will live in song forever, end quote. Manway says that while evil, Feanor's deeds, quote, yet good to have been, end quote. To put it another way, though Feanor acted evilly, perhaps there will yet be some good to come of his deeds. Mandos, in in his infinite wisdom, retorts, quote, and yet his deeds remain evil. To me, Feanor shall... Come soon, end quote and indeed feanor does as he dies in a futile attempt to regain possession of the silmarils from the powerful Melkor, his body crumbles into ashes and his fiery spirit makes his way back to the holes of mandos rarely is there a character in tolkien's legendarium that seems morally ambiguous if we compare tolkien to other more popular fantasy authors especially one such as george rr R. martin we will find a stork <laughs> a stark difference in the way each author treats good and evil in Martin's series, A Song of Ice and Fire, practically every character seems to have within them the capacity for both good and evil. To Martin, it is natural for there to be both lurking inside the human soul. Yet to Tolkien, evil is something completely different. It is some- simply something to be despised and done away with. There is no ambiguity here, and certainly no moral relativism. Compared to Le Guin's novel in which Jed must come to terms with the evil shadow that he himself has created, Tolkien's works do not seem exactly modern. In many of Tolkien's letters, particularly those written to his son Christopher during World War II, he is critical of many aspects of modern society. In one letter to Christopher, written in 1944, he rather humorously writes his thoughts on jazz quote, Music will soon give place to jiving, which, as far as I can make out, leans, means holding a jam session round a piano, an instrument properly intended to produce the sounds devised by, say, open, and hitting it so hard that it breaks. End quote. <laughs> If Tolkien sounds here like the crotchety grandfather trope we see so much of in popular culture, afraid of that damn rap and roll music, well, perhaps that's not quite inaccurate. However, there is wisdom to be found in some of his old-fashioned ideas. In another, much more serious letter to publisher Rainer Unwin's daughter Camilla in 1969, Tolkien writes on moral philosophy, Of those things, I will only say that morals have two sides, derived from the fact that we are individuals, as in some degree are all living things, but do not cannot live in isolation and have a bond with all other things, ever closer up to the absolute bond with our own humankind, kind. <clears throat> and the Silmarillion, with its absolutist views on right and wrong, good and evil, it is a prime example of utopian tendencies in art from the discontentment of the artist's worldviews. We should not be too dismissive of this outdated approach, however, nor indeed its values for the present moment. To Tolkien, though good may come of evil acts, the original act yet remains evil. Today, if we are so bold to point out the injustices of our current social structures, we are bombarded from all sides with examples of modern convenience and luxury expected to justify the current power structures. The convenience of the iPhone and the stock price of Apple certainly more than justify the mineral mining in sub-Saharan Africa and the factories of Foxconn. We no longer see many of the brutal manufacturing jobs that used to plague the United States, and though we know that they exist elsewhere under just as terrible, if not worse, conditions, how can you worry about such things when the price of that shirt is so low? One could speculate, applying the philosophy of the Silmarillion to modern inequalities, that though we see good come from global financialized capitalism, Tolkien would have something to say about its uglier side, the side in which we see the price of violently forcing a global capitalist system on countries such as Indonesia or Chile. Though good may come from our current power structures, to use Tolkien as a guide, the system remains evil. Fantasy is coercion. It is a tragedy, then, that both authors, Le Guin and Tolkien, lived to see at least some of their work adapted and co-opted into the culture industry of the modern capitalist system. Le Guin, for her part, was suspicious of the 2006 film adaptation of the Earthsea novels produced by Japanese animation powerhouse Studio Ghibli. The film was a textbook adaptation. Many of the main utopian themes of the novel were sacrificed to produce a final product that was more concerned with profit than creating a meaningful work of art. <clears throat> the same is true for the Peter Jackson films based on Tolkien's Legendarium. These films revolve entirely around the central theme of battle, and each scene in between acts as a vi- acts in each scene in between acts of violence and war seems simply to be leading up to the next major fight. Battle is an important part of the books, yet the Battle of Helm's Deep and the Battle of the Pelennor Fields were simply a means to an end, and not, as the films would imply, the ends themselves. The list of everything shocking and blatantly unfaithful about the later Hobbit film trilogy would take a paper all in itself, suffice it to say that these are three movies that run a combined total of well over seven and a half hours, based on a book coming in at around 300 pages. Yet according to Tolkien, the issue with the adaptations may lie in the form of film itself. He writes in his 1939 essay on fairy stories, quote, In human art, fantasy is a thing best left to words, to literature. In painting, for, ex- for instance, the visual presentation of the fantastic image is technically too easy. The hand tends to outrun the mind and even to overthrow it. Silliness or morbidity are frequent results, end quote. There's hardly a better example of the silliness that can result from a visual representation of the fantastic than Radagast in the Hobbit films. Originally portrayed as a hapless yet wise Maya in Tolkien's novels, Radagast is simply became comic relief for the film. Yet to sum up the failure of the film adaptations of Le Guin and Tolkien's works to a simple failure of form would be inadequate. The film is an altogether a film is an altogether different work of art than a work of literature, and has its own set of constraints and available liberties. While the main constraint on Tolkien's Legendarium or Le Guin's Earthsea cycle was simply that of length, for example, publishers did not want to publish the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings trilogy together, as Tolkien wished, since it would have been entirely too long, the main constraint on film adaptations is that of profit. Profit in the film industry has led to a corruption of the formula that art is supposed to inspire us with visions of utopia. Now the culture industry mass-produces content that replicates the social systems we are placed in. It commodifies our utopian desires and sells them back to us not to inspire, but to placate. Ultimately, this leads to a winnowing of creative prospects. Many films, television shows, and other market-commodified forms of entertainment all begin to feel the same. As said by Horkheimer and Adorno in their seminal essay, the culture industry, Enlightenment is Mass Deception, quote, on the charts of research organizations indistinguishable from those of political propaganda, consumers are divided up as statistical material into red, green, and blue areas, according to Income Group. The schematic nature of this procedure is evident from the fact that the mechanically differentiated products are all ultimately the same, that the difference between models of Chrysler and General Motors are fundamentally illusory is known to any child the advantages and disadvantages debated by enthusiasts serve only to perpetuate the appearance of competition and choice it is no different with the offerings of warner brothers and metro-goldwyn-mayer End quote. "oddly enough one of the production companies to work on the film adaptations of the hobbit was none other than mgm and the distribution company for the films was warner brothers" These companies stretched The Hobbit films as thin as possible in an effort to maximize profit at the expense of storytelling. In Le Guin's case, the opposite was true. Studio Ghibli, Ghibli? Ghibli, who has been, to be fair, responsible for major artistic breakthroughs in the field of animation, truncated her series into a single, profitable film. And so, we find the utopian visions of Le Guin have taken a modern, commodified form. A form that forces us not to step back and see our world critically, but that does the opposite. For all their cultural differences as writers and drastically different views on the state of modern society, Le Guin the Anarchist and Tolkien the Catholic, both authors saw their stories go through a similar process of commodification. The modern culture industry has become the great leveler of artistic visions it reduces complex and original thought to simply that which can and that which cannot be profitable. Public perception of fantasy as a genre has changed dramatically over its several decades thanks to this commodification. Fantasy is now enmeshed with a kind of geek culture. This is, to a certain extent, a culture that places reverence of the spectacle above its underlying subversive or utopian elements. The Guin, as said before, would see this spectacle of fantasy take a form in modern war games, both tabletop and virtual. But what are role-playing games, or RPGs, in which we pretend to take on the persona of another, more heroic individual, if not commodified, utopian fantasies? However, fantasy is not simply a breath of fresh air in an otherwise maddeningly, maddeningly mundane world. For all their differences in active and passive subversion and all their utopian ideals, neither Le Guin nor Tolkien were writing for the sake of escapism. It may be fun to imagine ourselves as Le Guin's Jed or Tolkien's Ayarindal in their different respective and fantastic worlds, but what we find ourselves thinking about long after a novel is finished is just what made those worlds so alluring. What was it about Earthsea and Middle-earth that was so attractive? Differences in style and ideologies aside, both Le Guin and Tolkien built worlds that showcase the best of human nature. For Le Guin, it's the inner journey, finding the equilibrium that all things in nature inhabit and discovering your place within it. It is the inner peace and purpose. For Tolkien, it is the joy and solidarity, and similarly to Le Guin, the realization that all living beings must live together and work together in harmony to find a way to develop their own maximum potential. The culture industry penetrates our consciousness with the grossest form of individualism. In consuming these bits of commodified media, our perceptions of utopia are warped. Utopia becomes less about altering the world we live in or the social relations that constrain us, and more about wishing that we were great. Wishing we could be the heroes in these fantastic realms, because perhaps it is us that is the problems, and not these structures of power that exploit us. It is the capitalist myth of opportunity, that in freedom, any one of us could become the next Oprah or Steve Jobs if only we were heroic enough. It is the myth of the American dream, and it tells us that if we feel discontentment in our lives, it is simply because we are not trying enough. So we come back to Le Guin and Tolkien, both opposites in personality and in select values, yet neither was complicit in the modern culture industry. We find, both in the progressive forward gaze of Le Guin and the backward longing gaze of Tolkien, tropes of a better world. And in their novels, when all was finished and the last words were written, these worlds did not look too dissimilar. Oh, that was kind of a pain to read all of, and I forgot that it was that long. Um, well, I hope everybody enjoyed that. Um, I did, did a little basic quoting of Adorno there, some easy culture industry stuff. Um, but hey... I think the point was made. That probably could have been shorter. Sorry for everybody who had to sit through me talking about the Silmarillion again. Um, Again, the book rocks. Go read it. I'm going to get going because I would like to watch the uh, Oakland Athletics beat the Houston Astros because everybody hates the Houston Astros. And, yeah, baby, like I said, I'll put the actual text for this linked somewhere in the description. I just got a notification on my phone that says that Trevor Bauer's leave is going to be extended. I mean, just put him in prison, quite frankly. This rocks. I like that, even though it kind of sucks because he's not going to be able to pitch. What are you going to do? Bad guy. Uh, Okay, everybody, we'll be back next week with an actual episode. Um, Again, sorry, stuff gets in the way. Uh, see you next time thank you so much for listening uh, this has been Jack uh, this song that you're hearing you've heard me say it before this is music to eat bananas to this, I just realized the baseball playing in the background let me turn that off uh this is king gizzard and the lizard wizard as i said uh music deep to bananas too if you'd like it you can go check it out on their Bandcamp. uh i think that's just kinggizzard.bandcamp.com uh, it's the same people who do the main episode uh, music it's off a the demos then go check it out it rocks